be to you from God our Father and from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. As we continue with the great I am sayings of Jesus, the I am, that great name that we saw in John chapter 8, where Jesus addressing the Pharisees says, before Abraham was, was what? Before Abraham was anything. It's a state of being. I am. I am what? I am that state of being. I am the everything. He's the ultimate. He's God. He is all. And then last week we saw that Jesus said, I am the resurrection and the life. And that included a very big no with it. As I am, as God, Jesus can and he did show his power over death when he raised Lazarus from the dead. But he also has shown us that he himself has power over his own death and that he has life. And that life that comes through him, we saw, shall never die. And that's written in a double negative. It's, it's shall never, ever, no, never die. There will be no death forever once we are with the Lord. And tonight, we go back to John chapter 8, where we began. Jesus in the temple. The discussion, the argument he had with the Pharisees was at the end of the chapter. That's where he ended with, I am. And he showed that he really is God because He hid himself and walked through their midst and then they saw him walking away. Only God could do that. It was like a Star Trek thing. He put on a cloaking device and no one could see him. And then they could. But it all began, that whole conversation, with tonight's I am. But to really understand it, again, we have to put it into context we have to first go to John chapter seven and see what happened immediately the day before John chapter eight. When we go to John chapter seven, we see that Jesus went to the temple for the feast of booths. This was the feast where they celebrated their deliverance from Pharaoh, from Egypt, and celebrated their journey through the wilderness as they lived in tents or booths, temporary housing on their way to their permanent housing. But more importantly, the focus was on God's deliverance and God's sustaining them through the manna and the quail and God's giving to them of the Ten Commandments at Sinai during that time. Chapter seven is a chapter that is filled with much gossip, many questions, a lot of answers, and some very good descriptions. I mentioned gossip, yeah? This is what we read in John chapter seven. There was much muttering about him. I would say that's gossip. What were they saying? I quote, 
He's a good man. And I quote, he's leading the people astray. Yet, those who said he's a good man came back with, I quote, how is it that this man has learning when he has never studied? They were amazed. But yet with that question there is, hmm, he is not a Harvard or a Berkeley grad. He does not have a PhD. He can't be trusted. He's not an expert. But yet there was a question that came. <laughs> See if this might fit a little bit of what we deal with today. Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Now, why would they say that? Or why would they ask that? Well, it comes in the very next sentence. When the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? <laughs> in other words, he's doing all these miracles. Maybe they really know he's the Messiah. Why aren't they telling us this? Why are they holding it back? I mean, could anybody, could the Messiah do more than he's already done? And, well, the Pharisees heard them. We read, the Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. So what was their reaction? The chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. And so they come to arrest him, and Jesus responds to them. And he tells them, you know, I'm going to be with you here a while, but then I'm going to him who sent me. And when I do, you won't be able to find me because you can't go where I am going. And then he says, anyone who thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And out of his heart will flow living waters. What was the result of that? Well, this is the very end of the chapter and of the feast. And that last day of the feast was called the great day. And on that great day, it takes us right back to the beginning with gossip. There are those who said, and I quote, this really is the prophet. That was scripturally based. The people knew that there would be a great prophet who would come before the Messiah. And they heard Jesus' teachings, they saw the miracles, and they said, this must be the great prophet. Then there were those who said, I quote, this is the Christ. And that is both scripturally based and evidence based. They knew the Messiah was coming and they knew he would do miraculous things. Jesus was doing miraculous things that only God could do. Therefore, Jesus must be God, the Christ, 
God in the flesh. And the third, it's the legal response. No prophet arises from Galilee, which is kind of crazy because they're arguing from the negative. Their basic thing is, when we look at the scriptures, it doesn't say anything about a prophet coming from Galilee. Therefore, he can't be a prophet or from God. But it never said that there'd be a prophet from Tekoa, and yet Amos was a prophet. Arguing from the negative never works. Chapter 7 is a very interesting read. I left a lot out. In, in fact, there's a whole section there about Nicodemus addressing the council basically in support of Jesus. Might want to go home and read John 7. But that's where it ends with gossip and yet some truth. Those who see that Jesus might be the prophet preparing the way, Jesus might be the Christ, the one in the flesh, and those who are, there is no way, uh-uh, we can't accept this. And chapter 8 then begins early the next morning. So this is right after this. That's when they bring to Jesus the woman caught in adultery. And he says, he who has you know, not sinned, let him cast the first stone. All the leaders go away because, well, they realize Jesus put them into a corner. They're gone and now he begins to teach and he starts out powerful. I am the light of the world. Notice not a light, the light. He's the only light of the world. And he presents a contrast or shall we say an enhancement that ties right into the whole Feast of Booths thing. Because for the Jew, first and foremost, we look to Psalm 18 and we read, the Lord my God lightens my darkness. Why? Well, it was their heritage. And God really had lit their darkness. Because again, for the Jew, you go back to Exodus 13, 21, what they were celebrating in the Feast of Booths, and we read, and the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way, and by night in a pillar of fire to give the light that they might travel by day and by night. That is why the Jews would say, the Lord, my God, lightens my darkness. He leads our way. And that light didn't depart from them for 40 years in spite of their sinful ways, their questioning, their grumbling, and everything else out in the wilderness. But yet again, notice, the Lord my God. That's written in the personal possessive. King David, this, the Lord is my God. He is my light. But for the Jew, it had become the Lord our God, the plural possessive. And Jesus is now 
rocking their boat. At the time of their celebration of this specific event, he doesn't say, my light, your light, our light. He is the light. And if he is the light, he is everyone's light. He is the only light. Now you might be saying, Pastor Matt, are you maybe just overplaying this just a little bit? Let's put this whole perspective into today's culture. I'd like you to consider two simple two-word statements, kind of like my light, the light. All lives, black lives. If you dare say all lives matter, you know you're in for an argument. Why? Because there's that exact same mentality today as there was with Jesus. It makes no sense to me today why we can't say all lives matter because all humans are created in the image of God. They all matter to God because God sent his son to die for all of them. It's not just one race or one color that matters. We really are all equal in the sight of God and we would do well to treat all equally as God has treated all equally and sent his son to be the light for all of us. So Jesus is dealing with the same type of mentality. No, 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 no. Our light, my light. I want to define that light. And it must be my way. And Jesus does not compromise. He does not back down. He does not soften his message so that, well, the Pharisees are not offended by my words. He speaks the saving truth to all. And of course, there is a threefold reaction just like there was in chapter 7. And just like there is today. What's that threefold response? Well, the first one is, <laughs> he is the light. Jesus is the Savior. He's the great I am. Creator of all, he's the everything. The second response, well, he might be. I'm just not quite sure. It's always the middle, the wet noodle. And then there's the, no, he is not. And let's go back to the time of Jesus. No, he is not. And what was their response? No, he is not. We must stop him. 
Sound familiar? The minute that we start talking in absolutes about Jesus saying he is the light of the world and he has come for everyone and race does not matter and should not matter, we will become the target of some horrible vitriol because it doesn't play into the mindset just like it didn't play into the mindset then. But the simple message tonight, and it really is simple, Jesus didn't use a whole lot of words. I am the light of the world. He is your light. He is their light. He is the light. He is the only light of the world. Follow his light. You will never be in darkness. Follow his light. It leads you to the life. The life with the big no. No death. No sin. No pain. No cry. Life eternal with the light of the world. In our Savior's name, amen.